right, good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Wes Butler. I'm the director of family ministry here uh, at the Dallas campus, and so humbled and thankful that I get to be with you this morning to open up uh, God's word. Uh, our good friend Bobby Crotty is not here today, and, uh, and so I want to try to honor all of his requests that he's made of me to start on time, end on time, get you to your small groups to do your thing. And so, man, can we thank God for Bobby Crotty? What a gift that man is. I am... Uh, I'm so thankful for uh, just his life, his ministry, his example to me, and, uh, and for the way that he pours into all of you as leaders and as participants here. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. So Father, we do uh, come into this place uh, this morning grateful. Um, and so Lord, I pray that uh, our gratitude would be aimed in the right direction, Father, that we would recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. Uh, and so we thank you for Bobby Crotty, for the leadership of Summit, for uh, leaders who have invested in small groups for the last several weeks, and um, for the conversations that we've gotten to have, for the things that you've taught us through your word. Father, we are a group of men who are crazy enough to believe that all scripture is breathed out by you, God, and that all of it is profitable, even stories about supernaturally strong, uh, long-haired uh, gorgeous men with psycho girlfriends. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning you would teach us through uh, the story of Samson, and, uh, and Lord, that you would instruct and inform our hearts. So, Spirit of God, we pray that you would move. So, Lord, let the meditations of my heart uh, be acceptable to you, O oh God, in the words of my mouth, in Christ's precious name, amen. Well, um, as I uh, got this request to come and, and uh, teach, uh, it was so ironic to me personally that I was being asked to teach in the book of Judges. Uh, because every year as I come to, I've, I've spent the last several years just making my way through all of the scriptures, and every year when I come to the book of Judges, it is the one that I am least excited about diving into. Uh, when I think about scripture reading, I, I have a, an approach that just comes from the story of Jacob and his wrestling with God. If you remember that story, it is Jacob uh, you know, coming to this place, he's, he's asleep, and all of a sudden this angel of the Lord comes, and it says that they wrestle all throughout the night, and at the end of that story, uh, the angel says, let me go, and Jacob's uh, response is, I will not let you go until you bless me. And of course, the angel blesses him by knocking his hip out of the socket, uh, which is quite the blessing. Um, but in all, in all sincerity, that's how I want to approach my time in God's word, that as I dive into books like the book of Judges, where I'm not as big a fan, I just go, Lord, I, I don't want to let go of this moment, of this opportunity until you bless me, until you teach me something. And so God in his kindness has taught me a lot uh, through the book of Judges over the years, and, uh, and so uh, I'm excited to talk with you about probably what is also, ironically, my least favorite character in the book of my least favorite book. Uh, so Samson is not one of my favorites, uh, and I think it was, hey, you're a children's pastor guy, so let's give him the, the story of Samson, because every kid knows the story of Samson. I think that's why it was given to me, uh, but uh, in all sincerity, I, I think it is God's sovereign hand that has us uh, here today. When I think about the book of Judges, there's a song that always comes back to my mind. It's a song by the great, late Rich Mullins. If you don't know who Rich Mullins is, you need to know who Rich Mullins is, one of the best songwriters and theologically deep uh, songwriters of our day and age. And he wrote this song called The Maker of Noses, where he talks about kind of the beginning of it is, hey, I've heard that there is this, this place, that there is this place where there's no poverty or crime, where there's no pain, there's no despair. And then he says, as I, as I uh, try to figure out where is this place and how do I get there, I turn to the world and I ask them, 
And uh, he says, do I turn to the left? Do I turn to the right? And when I turned to the world, they gave me this advice. They said, boy, you just follow your heart. And he says, but my heart just led me into my chest. He said, they said, follow your nose, but the direction changed every time I turned my head. They said, boy, you just follow your dreams, but my dreams were only misty notions, he says. And then he finishes up that chorus by saying, but the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams, he's the one I've chosen and I will follow him. And the book of Judges is full of a bunch of people saying, hey, just follow your heart, follow your nose, follow your dreams. And yet we know that, man, the the God who created our noses, our hearts, who gave us those dreams, he's the one that we want to follow. And so this morning, we're just gonna dive into this story of Samson. I'm not gonna take the time to uh, recap the story of Samson for you. I think you uh, know it and you should have studied it. Uh, and, and yet, as we read through God's word, what we always want to be looking for is, hey, what are the themes that seem to be kind of popping up as we make our way through the scriptures. And so I just recently finished reading through the book of Titus and you see the the theme of good works. There's over and over again, Paul talking about do good works, do good works, do good works. Uh, Ezekiel is one of those books that over and over and over again, you see this phrase that is repeated that says, and then they will know that I am the Lord. And you see this theme running throughout it. And so the story of Samson has a lot of different themes that we could uh, focus on. And for the sake of time, we're not able to focus on all of them. And so there is one that I want us to to look at because I think it's relevant to us. Honestly, the fact that the story of Samson is probably the, uh, for even people who have never read their Bibles is something that they know about. There's something about our hearts that craves stories like Samson of supernatural feats of, uh, of uh, you know, again, these strong men. There, there's something that our hearts kind of are drawn to in that. And yet I think the fact that it is a story that most of us are knowledgeable about might be more of an indictment on our culture than something that is uh, to be affirmed. Because when we look at the story of Samson, we find out that this is not a strong man. This is a weak man. He is a weak and broken man. And he is a man who, as we'll see this morning, is given to appetites. And so our theme that we see throughout Samson's life is that of appetites. And so if I were going to title today's talk, it's just Samson's appetites and what they teach us about us. Because his appetites, we see this theme play out. So there's, there's about five different things that you see in here. First of all, you see Samson's appetite of his eyes. Just over and over again, throughout these three chapters or four chapters, you see uh, Samson looking at something and going, yeah, I gotta have that, I gotta have that. And we could also fill in the blank there, just his appetite for sex. He was a, a, a sex addict, no question. And just kept running back to that well over and over again. It's like, hey, this is my appetite. I'm drawn to it. The appetite of his stomach, you see, as we'll dive into here in a minute, just the appetite. He walks by this dead lion and sees honey inside of the carcass and scrapes it out. Man, I've got to have that. I see it. I need it. My appetite is telling me that's a good thing. You see the appetite of his pride, that he wants people to be impressed by him. And so he uh, uh, you know, says, hey, I've got a riddle for you, Right? And he wants to impress everyone. And then when that riddle doesn't quite work out the way that he was hoping, his pride uh, leads him to kind of this next vice or appetite, which is his own anger and resentment, vengeance. So he lashes out. And over and over again, Samson gives himself back to anger and vengeance and, and, uh, and just these crazy fits of rage. 
that make no sense. It's just this appetite that is just insatiable in Samson. And then you see this moment where, uh, kind of in a Jonah-like way, where Jonah's complaining, hey God, where are you? Samson, who by all accounts has given no, no uh, attention whatsoever to God, finally goes, hey, I'm really thirsty, God. Could you do something for me? And somehow in God's abundant kindness and patience, he says, sure, Samson. And breaks open the ground so that Samson can drink from the well. And over and over again, Samson is just driven by his appetites. You know, we're coming up on the holiday season and uh, our world is banking on all of us uh, giving in to our appetites. Whether it is uh, the meal that you will prepare and feast on over Thanksgiving, whether it's the gifts that you just have to have this year or that your children or grandchildren just have to have, the world is banking on the fact that you are driven by your appetites. And the question is, do we want to be like Samson or is there a better way? Is there a better way? And so this morning, we're gonna look at four principles from the life of Samson very quickly that I think are helpful and instructive to us as we think about what do we do with our appetites? And so principle number one, just to dive right in, is just this. It is that values will either define your appetites or be compromised by them. What do I mean by that? Well, we know that uh, Samson was given uh, this Nazarite vow that was the, uh, the calling of God on his life. In chapter 13 of Judges, we see that. We see that uh, his father and his mother are told, hey, this is how this young man is supposed to behave. I love what Keller does in his commentary, and if you missed this part of it, I would encourage you to go back to it, because you do see Samson's dad come back and go, hey, angel of the Lord, tell me, what are the rules? What are the regulations? Just tell me the steps to this thing. And what Keller does a great job of pointing out is that, hey, this isn't so much about rules and regulations. This is about, do you have a relationship with the God of the universe? And that's where our values come from, right? It is, hey, what do I believe about God? Not so much what are the list of rules that I'm supposed to follow. The Bible is not a list of rules. It is about a relationship with the God of the universe who changes our appetites, and yet our values will either determine what our appetites are or, in the case of Samson, our appetites will compromise our values. So one of the core uh, convictions or, or orders for a Nazarite was that he was to touch no dead, unclean thing, not even to come in contact with it. And yet over and over again throughout Samson's life, he just kind of goes, eh, the reality is my appetite right now for that honey is telling me I'm willing to compromise. I'm willing to compromise, so give me that honey. And in fact, gives it to his parents to defile them as well. That his uh, appetite for vengeance and anger is so strong that, hey, if that jawbone of a donkey is helpful to me, then by all means, let me use it. And who cares about my values? And we see ourselves a lot in that, don't we? That we have these core convictions, these core values, we go, man, this is something that, that I know God has called me to, and yet if we're not careful, we too can give in to that same temptation to compromise. First John chapter two uh, talks about this, where John is appealing to the believers and saying, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so John is appealing to us as followers of Christ, as believers, hey, look, your values, let your values of who you believe God to be, is he your father? If he is, then will you follow him? 
Because the desires of this world, they're all passing away, but the desires of your father, the appetites that he wants to give you, these are good appetites. And he wants you to drink deeply. Your memory verse for this week is Proverbs 14, 27 that says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. Man, didn't Samson need that proverb? And don't we? That we would go, Lord, let me root myself in the fear of the Lord because I do believe that it is the beginning of wisdom. So the question for us today is, what are the appetites that tempt you to compromise? What are the appetites that tempt you to compromise? If I were to answer that question, I'd tell you, man, I, I am a people pleaser extraordinaire. I love when people love me. And that oftentimes will uh, cr uh, create in me an appetite to put my best face forward, to not tell you everything, to hide some of the things that maybe are not my favorite parts of me. To not admit, quite honestly, I think one of the reasons I hate the, book of, or I hate the story of Samson so much is because I see too much of myself in Samson. And I'm not inclined to let you know that, and so I'll compromise, and I might not tell you all the truth that you need to hear about me, or my anger that will well up inside of me. If you were to listen to my regen testimony, this is what you'd hear, is a guy who struggles with anger, with resentment, and who is given to flashes of rage and of just uh, uh, short-temperedness. And yet, is that the appetite that's driving me, or are my values going to drive me? And so what is it for you? If you've made a value decision that says, hey, we'll put no unwholesome thing before my eyes, but man, that movie that you really wanted to see, I know it has a three, you know, 30 second sex scene in it, but uh, I, I still wanna see all of the, the action film that I, I so long to see. This is my favorite character. Or man, that, that thing that I know if I tell my boss about it, that's gonna put me in a bad light. And so, man, I, he doesn't know about it. He doesn't have to know about it. And so I, I'm, I'm tempted to compromise. And yet Samson's story is a story of warning for us. It says, hey, will your values determine your appetites or will you allow those appetites to compromise your values? The second principle that we see in the story of Samson is this, that appetites are never satisfied. And so really the only question for us is what do you crave? You see, the thing that we have to understand, we see this in Samson's appetite for uh, uh, anger, right? And for vengeance. It's just that it's like this never ending cycle. We see it all through, the, uh, through chapter 15. He's like, oh, I get angry, I lash out. Oh, guess what? That makes people more angry. I lash out further. Oh, guess what? That makes people more angry. I lash out again. And it's just like, it's never ending. It's just this never ending cycle of anger and lashing out and, and never working and doing the hard work of peace. And the reality is, is that all of us have appetites and that appetites are not necessarily a bad thing. They're not a bad thing. C.S. Lewis did such a tremendous job of capturing this in the Screwtape Letters. And so if you don't know the Screwtape Letters, it's this book that he wrote that's kind of this uh, narrative of a, a senior demon instructing his junior demon on how to tempt uh, uh, us, right? Or his client in this case. And so as you read this quote with me, you're gonna see the name enemy. Well, the enemy they're talking about is God. And look what C.S. Lewis points out. He says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. 
Hence, we, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. See, our cravings are there, our appetites are there because God has placed them in us. We have a craving for justice. That is a good thing. We have a God of justice who has placed that within us. And yet what the enemy wants to do is he wants to twist it ever so slightly and make it more about you than it is about the justice of the Lord. God has given us appetites for, uh, for sex and he has told us the beauty of it. He's given it to us as a gift. And yet all the enemy wants to do is he just wants to twist it ever so slightly to tell you that, hey, your cravings for sex are your identity. And so you can identify yourself by what you are craving. We see this in the insanity of our culture today. And the fact that there are no longer just two genders on uh, forms, but there are a myriad of them. You identify as you see fit. Let your appetites and your cravings be what identifies you. And yet our God is saying there is a better way. God's formula is an ever-increasing craving for an inexhaustible glory. That is God's formula, an ever-increasing craving for an inexhaustible glory. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, Blessed are you, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And I wrestle with that verse quite honestly because here's what I, I tend to find personally is that I, as I hunger for and thirst for righteousness, it makes me want to hunger and thirst for more righteousness. And in the midst of me being satisfied by the righteousness of God, it just makes me want to go down to that well again. That's the thing about appetites, is it not? What you feed yourself will inevitably elicit, hey, I want more of that. We see that in Samson's life in a negative sense, but what if we said, Lord, let my cravings and my appetites be for the things of you. Let that be true of me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so the question for us is, hey, what is it that I'm craving? What are the longings of my heart? Can I say with the psalmist in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul, Lord, pants for you. Is that the appetite that I'm carrying around? Or do my appetites look a little bit more like Samson's? Just sensual in all of its basic forms. Just what are my senses? What do my eyes see? What does my stomach long for? What are my, uh, what are my uh, uh, you know, what are the desires of my sexual being? And will I give myself to those things? Which leads us to the next principle. Principle number three that we learn from the life of Samson is this, that appetites make terrible masters. But as Bob Dylan says, you're gonna serve somebody, right? You're gonna serve somebody. And Samson was prideful enough to believe that he was in control of his longings. We see this in his interactions with Delilah, do we not? We see him going, I got this thing. So I'm gonna tease her, I'm gonna string her along. She's gonna ask me these questions. And the, the insanity, quite honestly, of Samson's life in, in chapter 16 is just crazy. As we just watch him over and over again go, yeah, I know she's going to send the Philistines to me and yet I'll continue to kind of let her know. And yet Samson, ultimately, this was his downfall because he thought that he was the master and in fact, he was the slave. He was the servant to his appetites. And that's the thing about our appetites is that we are servants of them if we do not take mastery over them by the spirit of God. You're going to serve somebody. 
Paul wrote this to uh, the Philippian church in Philippians chapter three, where he wrote this. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Don't you love that Paul is grieving over the enemies of the cross of Christ? Side note. Their end, he says, is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And then he says, but hey, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do you know what our appetites actually do? When we give in to our appetites, when we allow them to be our master, they make us less than human. We become subhuman. I was talking with a friend yesterday who had a meeting with a guy who had given himself over to a sexual addiction over and over and over again. And as he described his interactions with this person who would not look up from the floor, who was constantly grabbing his, uh, just his pants and kind of tugging on them in this nervous rocking back and forth, it was like, man, this is, not a, this is subhuman. And that's what our cravings, when we give ourselves over to them, what they will do to us. And yet what Jesus is wanting to do is to make us more fully human. He wants us to, wants to take that sin and that appetite and that desire and that vice and he wants to put it under his mastery and his control. And he wants us to be slaves, not to our appetites, but slaves to righteousness. Romans 6, 16 through 18 says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Men, we are going to serve somebody. And the only question is, is your master, does he have your best intentions in mind? Our God does. Our God does. And that leads to our final principle. Principle number four is this, that dying to self and to our appetites is the only way to truly live. Now for our uh, anti-hero, Samson, uh, he didn't understand this until the very last moment of his life, Right? It took his humiliation at the hands of the Philistines to really figure this out. And even in his sacrificial death, we see the appetites of, he says, hey, look, will you put me up there? He, he prays to God and he says, God, will you do this so I can get them back for taking my eyes? It's kind of a sad ending to this rather sad story. And yet what we are told in the commentary of Judges is that, hey, in, in Samson's death, more of the enemy was slain than in all of his life combined. And the reality of that is that this is what Jesus told us. He told us, look, if you want to find life, then die. Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus told us the formula and you want to experience life, then lay it down. 
You know, the, the scriptures that command us as husbands, hey, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for it. When I talk with pre-married couples and you know, kind of wrestle with uh, that particular command, uh, I often kind of put myself in the frame of mind of, gosh, would I take a bullet for my wife? Yes, of course I would. And in fact, in many ways, that would be the easiest way that I could lay down my life for my wife. But you know what's harder? What's harder is me waking up in the morning and going, what are the needs of my wife and what do I have to sacrifice of my wants and desires and selfishness in order to serve her? And to do that this morning and again tomorrow morning and again the next day. What about the lives of my children, man? Would I stand in the way of and, and, and die uh, for the sake of my children? Of course I would. But the question is, am I willing to die for the sake of my children today? To put their needs above my own? to lay down my life for them daily. Romans 12 tells us that we are living sacrifices. And as many people have said, the only thing wrong with a living sacrifice is they tend to get up and crawl off the altar. I mean, I do that too often in my own desire for my appetites. And yet what the scriptures tell me is that death to myself, death to my appetites is the only way to truly live. And this is what our savior, what the true Samson did. That when Jesus came to this earth, he said, look, I'm not just going to wait until the cross to die. No, Jesus is daily dying. We see it in the temptation of Jesus that, hey, as that bread is set before him, he hasn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights and he is hungry and the enemy tempts him and says, here, just take this rock and turn it into bread. And Jesus says, no, I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to myself and to my desires. When the enemy comes with pride and says, hey, don't you want to be seen by everybody as this great and amazing uh, you know, person who jumps off the corner of the temple and plunges and yet is not hurt? Wouldn't that be awesome? And, and Jesus goes, you know what? I'm, I'm dying to that desire. See, Jesus didn't wait until Golgotha to lay down his life. It was every day for him. And men, we don't want to be the Samsons who wait until the final moment to put our hands on the pillars and to push it down and to die. Man, today, what are the pillars that you need to put your hands on and say, Lord, let me knock that down. Let me die to myself. That my neighbors might know the good news of Jesus. That my coworkers would know that there is an appetite that is driving me beyond just a desire for the bottom line or my fame and recognition. Uh, one of my favorite authors is a guy named N.D. Wilson, which I would commend to you. There's a great book that he wrote called Death by living, and I wanna read a quote to you uh, from that book. Uh, it's a short book, if you're uh, like me and you like short books, this is a good one to pick up. But he says this, he says, look, if life is a story, how shall we then live? It isn't complicated, just hard. Take up your life and follow him. Face trouble, pursue it, climb it, smile at its roar like a tree planted by cool water even when your branches groan, when your golden leaves are stripped and the frost bites deep, even when your grip on this earth is torn loose and you fall among mourning saplings, shall we die for ourselves or die for others? For most of us, the question is rarely posed in our final mortal moments, like Samson, although there is glory when it is. Death is the finish line of this preliminary race. Shall we cross the finish line for ourselves or shall we cross it for others? The choice isn't waiting for us down the track. The choice is now. Death is now. The choice is here. Lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. 
With an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the US, subtracting about eight years a day for sleep, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be giving... um, my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. And then he says this, living is the same thing as dying, but living well is the same thing as dying for others. I'm so thankful uh, to be surrounded by um, men here who I just see laying their life down. This week I was at lunch with my friend Jason, told me about their third foster placement, a little girl who's been bounced from home to home to home, and who wonders if this is the last stop for her. And Jason looking at her and saying, hey, let me just tell you that if this is what the Lord wants, we will gladly take you. I think about my friend Bruce, who seems like, uh, as he has adopted um, several children, has nine children, grandchildren as he and his wife opened up their home when they were newlyweds and said, hey, we'll take in those children who need a home. And I watch him even this week opening his home to two more kids who uh, are in a terrible place and are vulnerable. And he says, look, I want to lay down my life for you. And there's something beautiful about people who are dying, about people who are dying daily. And so what about for you? Will you die to your appetites? Will you put your hands on those pillars and say, hey, give way, Lord. Let my enemies be crushed as I bring light and beauty and joy into this world in the way that I love my wife and the way that I do my job, the way that I serve my neighbors. Let's be those men. We pray that we would. Father, we thank you that you are the God of Samson, that there was nothing that Samson did that was outside of your control, outside of your keeping, but Lord, you are the one who makes us strong. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to be strong, but to be strong in the right ways. To die to ourselves daily, to take up our cross and follow you wholeheartedly for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. Lord, we long for your name to be glorified, not the glory of any one of us. And so Lord, will you help us to Be honest about our appetites, Lord. Will you show us and reveal to us through your Holy Spirit to search me, O God, and know me. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me, any appetite that I am given to. And then, Lord, will you lead me in the way everlasting? Will you make me a slave to righteousness and not a slave to self? Lord, we ask that you would do this so that your name might be glorified and that the people around us might be blessed. We pray all this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.